I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth Emission, I speak to reporter Matthias Gaffney about his recent story on a cancer entrepreneur. She has an unusual past, and it's a happy news story, but about more than just cancer. It explores modern notions of criminal justice, starting over, and how to make a company out of necessity. That's today on Fifth Emission. Matias, welcome back to Fifth and Mission. Thanks for having me back. Let's talk about Aisha McCain. So tell us, who is Aisha? Aisha, gosh, she's got just a really incredible life story. She's really, uh, in the last couple months, had a big change in her life. She started her own company, and and this is years after she was caught up in one of the most notorious federal busts of a San Francisco gang ever. And from there, she has turned her life around and started this company. It's just a really fascinating story about her life. What I loved about this story is it's more than just a feel-good story of somebody who was in prison and you know made their life better. I think the story really explores modern notions of criminal justice, getting your life back together, marketable skills that drug dealers have. I mean, there's like a lot to unpack in this story. So why don't we go back and why don't you explain to everybody why her cancer diagnosis was particularly tragic when it happened in her life. Yeah. So she walks to Highland Hospital in Oakland. She's been feeling bad for a while. This is 2008. So this is about two plus years after she was released from prison. And so she was at, started at a halfway house. She started working, driving elderly patients to hospital visits and other appointments she started working cold calling people trying to help them in real estate as a, in, you know kind of in sales so she was kind of just getting her life back together and she had a bad feeling she'd been sick for a while and she went into the uh, doctor's office and had a mammogram they did the mammogram and the lady called me in to look at the mammogram and she was showing me like white spots on it and i was just like pressing my face up to it, trying to count them, and I was really um, scared. Yeah. I was really scared. I was really scared, and, well, I really, you don't even know what cancer is till you get it, like, really what it is. I didn't even know, so I was scared and confused and thought I was going to die. And as she told me, you know, the second she had it done and, and got the results, she could see in the technician's eyes that she had cancer. And why is it two years, you know, you would think two years after you've been released from prison, that's enough time to get your life back together. But as you say, she was living in a halfway house. Can you talk a little bit about how hard it is after you have served the amount of time she's served in prison, why that was taking her so long to sort of get everything back together? Yeah, it's... You know, up until her prison sentence, um, she had been uh, dealing in drugs. She hadn't had a, a real job, if you if you will, uh, before then. And so when she was released, you know, it's she has a felony on her record. So she's dealing with that as far as getting employed. It was so difficult. It, it was weird. When I first came home, it was just like, there were camera phones, you know, there weren't camera phones before I left. There were camera phones, and the city had changed a little bit, you know, different construction, and I just, 
It was so weird. I, I would go to restaurants and I would absolutely have no idea what to order because I wasn't used to having options or choices. Or I would leave the water running and forget about it because I was so used to just pressing a button and the water comes out and then you have to press it again like a water fountain almost. And she was, you know, slowly getting back on her feet with that. But it's a struggle. I mean, you're starting from square one in a lot of ways. And she had, you know, limited family uh, backing. And so, you know, it was a lot of work to to get her life back going again. Over the last, I would say, like 20 or 30 years or so, I've seen a huge change in how the news media talks about gangs and how gangs are sort of understood in a socioeconomic and, and, and gosh, I, I would even say like an anthropological sort of sense. And the story does a really good job of explaining, you know, you said this, this was a very notorious gang bust. Why don't you give us the police, the official uh, version of what happened in that bust and, and why it was so important at the time? Yeah, so this is 2001. I mean, this is August 2001. We're right before September 11th um, to get kind of get your bearings. And this has been two years, federal authorities have said this, these two gangs in Hunters Point Bayview area is Big Block and West Mob. And they've been feuding over um, turf wars, over drugs and, and, and rap, rap lyrics. And they estimate about 20 or so murders of young men during that two-year period uh, before her arrest. And so, yeah, it's uh, – they – on uh, in August of t- 2001, uh, Aisha tells the story how she's sitting at a friend's house. She turns on the news and she sees this big bust of the FBI going across the Bay Area and it's all her friends getting picked up. And she, you know – told me this, uh, how she kind of knew it was inevitable. She's going to get arrested. She rolled a joint, lit it, smoked it. And moments later, the door doors pounded open and she was arrested and off she off she went. So that's the official version and really how a lot of gangs were covered by the media and still are, arguably. But then she kind of tells a different version of that gang life, that it wasn't to her this organized criminal activity where they were fighting for, you know, a part of the drug dealing economy. But these were her friends and her neighborhood. And it, and it, it, it seems like a different point of view. Yeah. And, um, you know, to her, you know, Big Block was a, a record label. It was all her friends in the neighborhood, her boyfriend, um, who the, the police said was the leader of this gang. So I was a runaway, and I had to figure out a way to take care of myself. So I started selling weed and then cocaine. When I got turned about 18, I started selling cocaine, um, and I was dating. You know, my boyfriend was Douglas Stepney, and... He was considered the leader of a gang, but to me, it was more like a group of neighborhood friends, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they're very quick to label things gangs when it's more than, you know, and sometimes it's just a group of friends. What is a gang, I guess, is is kind of the big question here. Uh, and I've dealt with other on other stories, too, where it doesn't take much to, to call someone a gang, you know, legally speaking, you know, and, and that has consequences because there's gang enhancements and it becomes, you know, potentially a significant um, sentence increase um, for these crimes if you're considered to be in a gang. 
So let's go back to right after she was diagnosed. So she has all of this context of being in prison and getting out for two years, and she has this diagnosis. What happens to Aisha at that point? Yeah, it's it's in many ways a turning point. Um, it's a really interesting conflict she has with just cancer itself. Um, so she's diagnosed uh, with stage two cancer. Um, it's spread to her lymph nodes. She starts going through just a ton of surgeries. I mean, she has been through more than a dozen surgeries. Um, she's got scars all over her upper torso from the various surgeries, reconstruction. Uh, she eventually has a double mastectomy. She has numerous surgeries to overcome infections and complications. So she, from that diagnosis, she has a long road and and, and it's through there where she she kind of looks at things from a patient's perspective, and that's kind of what gets her this idea for this company eventually. Um, Casual Recovery is a company that is going to provide garment solutions to people post-operative. So people that have post-surgical drains, instead of having to safety pin them to their clothes, which is the current standard of care, will be able to recover with more dignity. So explain to everybody what a Jackson Pratt drain is. Yes. I became very, uh, very well equipped on, on this, uh, how to drain blood and pus from your body after surgery. It was quite the topic. But yeah, this is, um, if you can imagine looking at it, this is like a little, almost like a grenade that's, in, that's clear plastic. And it's, you basically squeeze it and let it go. And there is a plastic piping that goes from that grenade to the side of your body. And it's literally, it has a constant pressure on it, sucking out any of this fluid that could lead to a, you know, an infection or complications to surgery. So this is, this is in millions of surgeries where you have to have these drains. It's kind of, you know, not everyone knows about it. Um, and, and at the time, you know, what you do did with it was you safety pin it to your shirt after surgery and you kind of live with it. And how long did she have to have one of these drains? She found out about it after her first surgery. They're like, okay, here's post-op. You know, we need to hook this drain up to you and it's just going to be on your shirt. And she's like disgusted by it. I mean, it's like you can imagine it's just you're seeing this coming out of your own body. It's just really disgusting to look at. And so she kind of lives with it the first time. But as she's doing more and more surgeries, she's like, okay, I'm not going through the same thing again. And she she calls a seamstress like up in Santa Rosa and was like, hey, can you make me a vest? She says, here's a lemon. Make sure the pockets inside can hold this lemon and give me a few pockets. And so basically the idea would be instead of having this on my lapel, you know, this disgusting drain, I'm going to tuck it into these pockets. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm not embarrassed to go out to Safeway to go pick up groceries and I'm not, you know, embarrassed to go walking and get some exercise, that kind of thing. So that leads her to get some patents for this this invention, that this, this garment, right? Yeah. So she <laughs> – after she starts wearing this, her surgeon and her, the nurses are just like slack jawed. It just, oh my God, this is such a good idea. Dr. Spatani, he's the one that encouraged me to make it available to other people that other patients really needed this. And he's kind of been like my mentor encouraging me. He did a medical survey and 
Um, I'm waiting on the results to get published. It should be in a couple months in a medical journal. He's really excited about it, just really positive results. All his patients loved it, increased mobility. We hope to show that, you know, we even decrease infections because the bulbs aren't outside exposed to the outside elements. They're more protected. And they basically told her, like, you need to do something with this. This is just like a great idea. And so she goes and she realizes you know, okay, maybe I'll create a prototype. So she gets another seamstress and they create this vest with four pockets on each side for drains because a lot of times you need multiple drains post-surgery. And she then realizes, though, I'm going to need a patent for this. And that's kind of the next really big challenge for her, not only getting a patent, but you need to get a patent attorney. And this is someone who's on a fixed income. And so she goes to her friends and says, you know, look, I need some money to get a patent attorney. Can you help me out here? And and they loan her some money and she finds a guy who deals with like normally like Silicon Valley tech types. And, and, and he basically told her, you know, you're asking for a patent on clothing. I mean, clothing has been around since like the Neanderthals, you know, <laughs> this is like caveman stuff. And so is there really something that is unique um, to drive for a patent? And they wound up going through that whole process, and it turned out successful. And what is the status of the company that those patents helped her establish? Yeah, so literally the week this story came out in the Chronicle, her her company went live, um, and she has started the company. She's got that patent. She has multiple other patents pending. So, I mean, I called her, like, throughout this, we started joking. I was calling her Benjamin Franklin. Like, she's just like... Every other week I'd talk to her and she would tell me about a new invention she had. It was just, it's incredible. She comes up with these ideas and moves forward with them and, and, and she's making it happen now. I mean, these patents are pending. She's got, she just passed a big step in her company just in the first couple of weeks where insurance companies will now cover this, which was a big obstacle for her, um, for getting people to pay for this. You know, a lot of people can't afford it. Right. And and most medical companies or companies that deal with that, the reimbursement thing, that's where all the money, that's where you, because you're not going to pick this up at Nordstrom necessarily. These are kind of specialized things. So you went to her house in the course of reporting this story. Can you talk a little bit about just how, how do you, you get a tip for this story, I presume. Uh, how does that go from a tip to what you see in the front page or on the website? Yeah, so this this was a tip from a, a former coworker of mine who happens to know Aisha and thought she had a really interesting story and she thought I'd you know be interested in it and so this was I got this tip maybe in my second week here at the Chronicle and so I was still like you know in HR mode and learning how to you know use to log on to the computer and like where your desk <laughs> is and where the bathroom is. <laughs> yes, get a cell phone, you know, like the real basics. And so I'm like, this is a really straightforward story to get my feet wet. Like, why don't I just try to knock this out um, to kind of get a, a good building block story to get some momentum going? And so, going thinking that, I go drive to her apartment in East Bay. And I spent two hours with her and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is not just, you know, a little 18 inch story that I'm going to knock out like this. She deserves her story deserves like, you know, a lot more attention. Wait, wait, and... You have to explain what an 18 inch story <laughs> yeah, is sorry. to everybody. That's newsroom <laughs> lingo. Yeah. Like 18 column inches. So um, your typical story, I don't know, maybe is in the 20 inch range. So I was thinking pretty 
basic, I guess you could say, when I went it's into like the story. 800 words, maybe that would be something, yeah, something like that. That's math. So we're yeah. getting okay. beyond yeah, my hard. specialty here. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, I was just, I, I left the meeting and I, I sat in my car and I called Damien, my editor, and I said, I'm going to need more space for this. This is, this woman's fascinating. What was it about what you heard in that first visit to her house that made you think, oh, this is, this is more than just a nice story about a woman who started a company? Yeah, I mean, on a story like this, where you're you're kind of showing this arc of of uh, the subject from you know some troubling times into kind of redemption or some uh, better times, you know, it's all about trust, and and we kind of hit it off right off the bat, and she was being wide open with me about details about her past, and just uh, also she had a cr- incredible memory. She remembered all these details. Um, that's really critical to like kind of bringing a story alive. And so it was just really interesting. I just found myself fascinated as she was talking. She's really well-spoken. Um, and I mean, the hardest part about the story, frankly, was like leaving stuff on the cutting room floor, as you know, as you say, like it was, I was it's just a wealth. I had so much stuff and i had to like pare down and and you know leave all this great stuff out of the story and 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 it was just like how do i keep this focused you know that was really so the biggest challenge give us an example what's some of the stuff you left on the cutting room floor <sighs> oh gosh um i mean she had this whole narrative she was telling me about when she first um she was a runaway that's how she wound up kind of in the hunters point neighborhood and she's telling me about her early kind of drug dealing days where she was selling marijuana. She was like one of the only female drug dealers. And she kind of developed this really like core um, good business because everyone trusted her more than the others. And she wound up meeting these two other female drug dealers and they kind of bonded and got together. And they were like, you know, best of friends dealing drugs. Um, other women. Other women. So yeah. they had like a a co-op of women selling yeah, hot, it, hot in the neighborhood. Yes. And they were super successful and they were um, doing this for a while. And see, I think that's a great detail. I mean, I know why you left it out because it takes the story down this other random road that then you yeah. have to explain what happened to those women and how, how'd she get back to where she ended up getting arrested. But it does kind of show that she had this entrepreneurial streak in her using the resources that she had in the community at the time. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was, I mean, to, to just on those, those, um, the three women, obviously we know her story, but one of the other women now runs an, a nonprofit and and one of the other ones, um, actually died, unfortunately, but yeah, so they had an incredible tale, but yeah, um, about her kind of what she learned, um, and her drive was evident back then. And that was kind of in, when she was in prison, it was actually what one of the counselors brought up was like, you know, she's in one of these classes of like, how, what I'm going to do on the outside. And the counselor was basically telling, she's telling the counselor, you know, I was a drug dealer before. Like, you know, what do I have when I get out of here? Like to do anything on drug de- and And the counselor's like, oh my gosh, like think back of like what you're dealing with. You, you're dealing with math. You're dealing with, you know, supply and demand. You're dealing yeah, with logistics. logistics. You're yeah. dealing, you're running, you know, a crew and you're, you're um, getting products in advance and, and, you know, you have a lot of um, really marketable attributes that, you know, you could use to your advantage. Right. And so you went to her house. How do you get someone who has, 
you know, a, a pretty different background than you to open up to you as a reporter? What does that look like? Because I think sometimes people assume reporters come in and it's very aggressive and it's very um, you're taking something from them. Um, but that's not really the process that happens when you walk into somebody's house. Why do you do it at the house? How do you get her to talk to you? Yeah. I mean, each each case is kind of different with Aisha. Frankly, it wasn't as challenging to others. She was very open. Um, I, I told her I, – I like to tell them like ahead of time to kind of be open with them like, look, you know, obviously this is really interesting about your company and it's really interesting about um, these patents. But you're – the real story that's really compelling and really going to inspire people is your full journey, you know, from being a, a runaway in Hunter's Point selling drugs to being arrested and being in prison. And I think she understood that. Um, and she, you know, we started just by talking about, you know, the stuff on her walls. She has like her whole like living room is full of whiteboards with inspirational quotes and her checklists for all the different projects she's got going on. She's got a mugshot of herself bald up there as inspiration to remind her of her cancer. It's, I mean, overwhelming her like living room is just so much stuff going on. And so we just kind of chatted. I didn't have my notebook out. And we got to know each other a little bit um, and she just started opening up and I mean, we've kept communicating after the story. I mean, we text each other, you know, weekly, just kind of seeing how everything's going. That's awesome. This is one of the rare happy stories that we've put on the front page in a while, too. I mean, sometimes the news by definition is not the happiest thing. What kind of reaction did you get from people? Yeah. And especially, you know, for my own personal career, I've... I've unfortunately had to deal with a lot of really um, terrible, um, depressing stories, um, which is sometimes the nature of the beast, just your beat or whatever you're covering. And this was a really refreshing story to write, frankly. And and, and um, the, the response was just overwhelmingly positive, which is almost unheard of in this industry. I mean, you could write, you know, the nicest story ever and you're going to get people who are incredibly jaded and cynical about it and almost to the person I heard back from everyone was super positive about it. And, and, and Aisha was positive about it, which was, you know, when you're bringing up people's pasts um, and stuff that may not, they may not be incredibly proud of, you know, you always are kind of like holding your breath a little bit that, you know, you're going to tell their story and give, do it justice. And so she was super enthused after, after the story. And as I said, we've been keeping in touch ever since. Well, I like too that, we're able to put those stories in a high profile place because I do think people assume that we're always into things that are nasty, but there are a lot of good things that are changing in our community too. And a lot of things you can learn from Aisha's story. So thanks for telling it to us. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Thank you so much to Matthias Gaffney and thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. 